the um, scripture text this evening will be Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6. And if you did attend the conference, this will try to bring together some of the themes that we covered in the conference by looking at it from the perspective of 8, 1 through 6. So hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. <clears throat> Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Please be seated. Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless the proclamation of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would illumine our hearts as your gospel goes forward by the power of the Spirit of the Ascended Christ. We pray that you would work in our hearts that we might know and serve and follow Christ in faith, in repentance, and that we might continue to know the one who has loved us and given himself for us. Bless us now by your gospel, by the power of the ascended Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6, distills what the author of the Hebrews calls the point or main point of the book. And the point that comes into view is that we have a high priest and a minister in heaven who is seated at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. And the ministry that he has obtained is better than the ministry of the old covenant because the covenant he mediates is better as it is enacted on better promises. And so the basic point of Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, is the better promise that appends to the heavenly high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ on the one side, as it fulfills and surpasses the Levitical priesthood under the Mosaic covenant on the other side. And so where could we start? Where could we start? I want us to start by making this assertion that summarizes the teaching of your whole Bible. 
And here's what it is. Both the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under the ascended Christ are covenants of grace. They are two distinct administrations of the one covenant of grace by which God draws near to his people for fellowship in the Messiah. That is the most basic point of similarity. God, in his grace, through the promised Messiah, draws near to his people. But the distinction that is so elusive for some is this, that it is a promised Messiah under the old covenant. It is an ascended Messiah under the new. It's the same covenant grace in the promised Messiah that comes to its climactic fulfillment in the crucified and ascended Messiah. And the contrasts in Hebrews 8, and indeed the contrast throughout the whole book of Hebrews, develop that basic similarity and that basic distinction. And where I want to start with you is in verse 3. I want you to look at the sacrifices that come into view in the Old and the New Covenants. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Christ, to have something to offer. Now, in the Old Covenant, the high priest would offer gifts and sacrifices that did two basic things. They typified and applied the benefits of the promised Messiah. For instance, Leviticus 1.4 speaks of the sacrificial blood of animals that would make atonement for the people for whom they were offered. In Leviticus 16, expanding in a dramatic way what is compressed in 1.4, you read this. That would happen on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, 15 through 16. Then he, Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, because of all their sins. And he shall do so for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. You see, in the Old Covenant, blood was shed that brought atonement and cleansing, but only as that blood was a type of Christ's blood, only as that blood was the ordained means through which God would apply to his people the efficacy of Christ promised. The way we explain this in, in the Reformed faith appears in Westminster Confession of Faith 7.5. Christ and his benefits are applied to the elect in the Old Covenant 
through promises, types, and sacrifices that prefigure the coming Messiah. So here's what you need to remember. Those sacrifices were not empty, bare shadows. They were the vehicular means through which God brought Christ and his benefits in promised form to his people and by the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit applied Christ, the promised Christ, to his people, cleansing them from their sin, liberating them from its bondage, and dwelling in their midst. So when the believer in the Old Covenant placed his trust in the promised Messiah, these sacrifices were effectual for the satisfaction of wrath and the removal of guilt. They were an atoning sacrifice that prefigured Christ and brought his benefits to the elect even before Christ appeared in history. Those sacrifices were symbols of the saving presence of God in the promised Messiah. This is why Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets were justified by faith in Christ and knew God in the promised Messiah. In a manner parallel to this, look at verse 3. It was necessary for this priest, Christ, to have something to offer. Christ is the ultimate person to whom those sacrifices pointed. Christ was the Messiah to whom those sacrifices directed the faith of the old covenant people of God. And the relation between the new covenant and the old covenant sacrifices lies in this. The symbols of God's saving presence to make atonement, represented by the animals, have given way to the substance to which they pointed, namely Christ. Christ in his death has appeared once at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The repetition of the animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant, their annual year-by-year -year repetition has given way to a once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that they typified all along. To summarize, listen to Hebrews 11, uh, 10, 11 through 12. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ's high priestly sacrifice on the cross brings to climactic expression what the sacrifices offered repeatedly by the high priests in the Old Covenant typified, what they moved toward. And Christ, then, has done this. Hear this. This is the summary. He has put an end to sacrifice and sin once for all. That is what Christ has done. Hence, 
the first line of thought for the better promise. No longer are symbols and types offered because Christ has offered himself once for all to do away with sin. Do you know that's one of the main reasons we're not Roman Catholic? Because of Christ. He is not repeatedly offered in the Lord's Supper. We receive the benefits of his once-for-all redemption by faith, by the power of the Spirit. Now, this is the culmination of his past ministry. And I want to say something that might help you think a little bit critically about this in a good way. Jesus' sacrifice is finished once for all. But as you think about that, there is another strand of better promise in addition to that once for all past earthly sacrifice. And that emerges when we think of verses 1 and 2 and 4 through 5. Notice what is said in verse 4. This is fascinating. If you read through your Bible quickly, you could read by this one and it might not hit you. But listen. If Christ were on earth right now, he would not be a priest at all. Have you ever thought of that? If Jesus Christ were still on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why? This is so because especially at the time this book was written, there were high priests appointed to serve in an earthly sanctuary. So Christ's high priestly ministry cannot be an earthly priesthood that has its locus in an earthly sanctuary. His high priesthood must be heavenly. His high priesthood is of a different order, not an earthly order, a heavenly order. This is the second main shift in the book of Hebrews. The first one is from repeated sacrifices of animals that typify the coming of Christ. The second shift is from an earthly priestly ministry, the Levitical, to a heavenly priestly ministry, the Melchizedekian. And Jesus does not occupy the former. He occupies the latter. And verse 5 makes this clear from the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Look, the high priests of the Old Covenant, the Levitical order, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was told to make everything according to the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. That pattern is a quotation there. That, that, that quote is from Exodus 25:40. And here's what I want you to think of. We talked about Moses on Mount Sinai during the conference. And during that time, remember, the Lord showed Moses his glory. And Moses bore that glory on his countenance as he was in the presence of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, and he ate and drank nothing. While he was on that mountain, with a view toward that, oh, pardon me, I just made a mistake. This was when Moses was on the mountain prior to what we looked at 
in Exodus 32 through 34. It was when the initial giving of the law was done, the first tablets that he broke. Sorry, I must be getting tired. Sorry. But here's the point, and this is very important for us. While he was on the mountain with the Lord, I want to tell you what happened. The Lord opened the barrier between the visible heavens and the invisible heavens, and he called Moses to look up to that mountain of the Lord. And he showed Moses the pattern that he was to construct the tabernacle after, and it was what? It was heaven itself. The old covenant earthly sanctuary from its very outset was patterned after heaven, which is the place where God's throne and God's temple dwelling reside. The earthly tabernacle was never designed for a moment to be a permanent end in itself. From its very inception, it was a copy and a shadow of the thing Moses saw while in heaven. It's at that point that Moses saw what Isaiah would see later in redemptive history in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. He would see the Lord and the train of his robe filling the temple in heaven and the seraphim encircling him in worship. It is that heavenly archetype that God revealed to Moses while he was on Mount Sinai receiving the Decalogue the first time. The earthly worship of the Old Covenant was preparatory for something greater. It was designed by God and revealed to Moses to be an earthly copy of the heavenly original. But what was the essence of the tabernacle? What did the tabernacle represent? Here's what I want you to hear. The sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement were a means to an end of God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle and in his glory. The saving presence of God in the promised Messiah manifests itself in the tabernacle. So when you get to the end of Exodus... In Exodus 40, 34 through 38, what happens? After sacrifices are offered, after the people of God know that they have been cleansed through the mediation of the promised Messiah, in promises, types, and sacrifices, we read this. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord descended from heaven and filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord. Just as it is in heaven, so it was on earth. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory that appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, 33, 17 through 23. The glory that Moses bore on his face having been with the Lord on Sinai for 40 days, 34, 28 through 34. 
that glory came in such an intensive and climactic form that neither Moses nor the people could stand in its presence. And so there's this movement we talked about during the conference of an, of an ascending, intensifying glory presence. And it's as though that glory presence drives the people of God away because of its resplendent power and holiness. The point is that neither Moses nor the people could enter into the presence of God and behold his glory, which Psalm 27, 4 says is the highest goal of the covenant of grace. One thing I ask of you, Lord, let me enter into your temple and view your glory. That glory was too great for Moses and the people to bear. So the old covenant, while a covenant of grace in which God drew near to his people in the glory of the promised Messiah, that covenant was not sufficient to bring people face to face with the glory of God. It was not sufficient to facilitate God's glory dwelling in the midst of his people in a form that they could behold. It was too do you know what this unearths? It unearths the need for a better covenant rooted in better promises. And those better promises are not fulfilled in a promised Messiah, but an ascended Messiah. The promised Messiah who is crucified, raised, and then what? ascends up into the presence of God's glory in heaven in its unadulterated fullness and sits at God's right hand. That is what dawns in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And listen, that is the main point of the book of Hebrews. Look at verses 1 and 2. The point that we are making is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. You see, Jesus as our high priest and minister in heaven has entered not into that earthly tabernacle that Moses fled from. He has entered into the true sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, pitched by the Lord and not by man. And where he is now, he exists as a high priest and a servant of the church. Hebrews 8.2, Jesus serves in the true tabernacle. Jesus serves in the place Moses could only gaze at from on the earth. Jesus serves at the place where Isaiah could only gaze at from the earth while he covered his mouth and pronounced a curse upon himself. Jesus Christ has entered into the glory 
temple in heaven and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has entered not into the earthly copy. He has entered into heaven itself. And listen, everything depends on that. Everything is rooted in Christ's ascension as the crucified and resurrected Messiah up into heaven as a high priest and a minister of the gospel, a minister of the new covenant. What does this mean for you? Everything. It means this. Your hope is found in heaven. Your identity is found in heaven. Your life is found in heaven because Christ, your high priest, and the minister of this new covenant is found in heaven. And what this means for the church, the church who is in the wilderness of this world, the church as she suffers hardship, trial, difficulty, and pain in the wilderness, the church as she is hard-pressed and deeply fatigued by the suffering of this present age, what this means for the church is that you have an infallible hope in the form of an anchor for your soul that has been raised up and entered behind the veil into heaven where Jesus has gone with an identity that means everything for you. Hebrews 6.20, paralleling Hebrews 8.1-2, says this, that Jesus has entered into heaven as a forerunner, having become a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a forerunner in a very specific sense. He goes before us into heaven so that he might bring us where he is. In heaven, at the right hand of God, as we said this morning, are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16.10, Acts 2.28. Jesus has entered into heaven and he has done so for the precise purpose that he might bring us where he is in the presently veiled, glorious temple dwelling of God. And as a forerunner, as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he has this primary function, to mediate the glorious presence of God to the church that is in union with Christ. He enters into heaven so that he might bring heaven to you and you to heaven. He enters into heaven so that where he goes, you might follow. John 14, 1 through 2 is the teaching that undergirds this. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not true, I would not tell you, but I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you might be. He is in heaven now as your servant and as your high priest. The Son of God 
is your servant in heaven. And what this means so clearly is that the ministry Christ has obtained is better than the ministry of the old covenant. Better how? Better in every single conceivable sense of the term better. There's no sense in which his ministry is not better. In the old covenant, neither Aaron nor Moses could bring anyone into the presence of God as he condescended to earth. How much less were they powerless to bring the church to heaven, into the temple above. But Christ enters into heaven to bring his people where he is. And this is why he continues to serve. Your Savior will not stop serving you ever. And he won't stop serving you in this age until he brings you home. Until he brings you to heaven. Until he brings you into the presence of God. There are a few ways of explaining what this service aims at. On the one hand, Christ lives that he might bring many sons to glory. 2.10 Glory? What is glory? What drove Moses out of the tabernacle? The glory of the Shekinah presence of God. What did Moses ask to see in Exodus 33, 18? Show me your glory. And what did God say? No one can see the glory of my face and live. What Jesus has done is entered into glory so that he might bring you the very thing Moses longed to see but couldn't see. Why? Because Christ was promised but not yet ascended. Jesus has opened heaven, opened glory, opened the face of God to you that you might gaze upon the face of the triune God, the face of the Father, the face of the Son, the face of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ as high priest, he is bringing you to the glory of face-to-face -face fellowship with God, and you will not be driven away. You will be drawn near in Christ. Glory is the heavenly goal to which in Christ we aspire and to which he is bringing us now. He is bringing many sons to glory. This is what it means in Hebrews 12.22 when the author says that in Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God the innumerable angels in festal gathering, the firstborn of the assembly of God, the spirits of the righteous made perfect in Christ, to Christ himself, to God, the living judge of all. Jesus is bringing you to glory 
and in this age he has brought you to Mount Zion, which is the mountain of the glory of the living and true God. And it is a heavenly dwelling place that is filled with the glory of God in Christ. But the grand goal, the omega point toward which all of redemptive history drives is one thing. It is Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4.3, when translated properly, says that those who believe are already in the process of entering that rest. As you trust in Christ, you are already undertaking entrance into promised Sabbath rest. By faith in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion. By faith in Christ, you are being brought to glory. By faith in Christ, you are in the process of entering rest. Just as Israel in the wilderness in union with the promised Messiah was in process of being brought to rest in earthly Canaan, so you, the new Israel, in the wilderness, in union with the ascended Christ, are being brought to the rest of God in heaven. Do you see it? It's the deep structure of biblical revelation that the book of Hebrews expounds for us. And you are being brought to rest as by faith you abide in Christ. You rest in Christ. You trust in in Christ, and you know that he alone gives you the resources by which you will traverse this wilderness, and you will enter rest. But let me tell you this. The process of entering rest does not end until your body seated here is brought to heaven. That and only that brings promised Sabbath rest to consummation. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, brings that rest into view. And listen how clear this is. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The argument is so simple. Listen. Just as God rested from his very good works of creation and entered into heavenly Sabbath rest, so you, the church, will rest from your good works done by spirit-forged faith in Christ as you are in the wilderness and when you rest from those good works, you will enter rest. Hebrews 6.10, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work for his sake and the love that you showed in serving the saints. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Listen. You who are in Christ Jesus, listen. God will not forget 
the love and good works that have been wrought in you in your union with Christ. He will not forget them. He sees you. He knows you. You are in his son and you are walking by faith. And he tells you this, that when your wilderness works are complete and when your body is raised from under the ground of this wilderness, you will enter rest just as God rested from his very good works of creation. These works from which you rest are desert works, works that are done in the service of Christ and in his church while in the wilderness. The rest is the reality to be entered into fully when your wilderness works are finished. So Hebrews 4.11, hear this. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That sounds chilling, doesn't it? It's not chilling for those in Christ. I want to tell you why. The striving to enter that rest is precisely where your Savior meets you and serves you. Do you see it? The striving to enter that rest by faith in Christ is precisely where your Savior meets you and serves you by his word and spirit as he sits at the right hand of God as your high priest. As he serves you, 8-2, he gives you grace and mercy to assist you in your time of wilderness need, 4-16. Do you see it? The wilderness is so difficult, so hard, so easily something that can overwhelm and engulf the church. Hebrews 8, 2 is the reason the church will persevere. You will not fall who look to Christ Jesus. Your body will not fall in the wilderness and be lost. It will fall in the wilderness and be raised and be brought where Jesus is. It is his service as your high priest, his work for you and in you, that gives you infallible assurance that you most certainly will persevere. In fact, if anywhere, Hebrews makes it clear that the saints persevere because they are preserved by the one who did persevere. Do you see? You persevere because the one who persevered first preserves you as your servant, as your minister, as your high priest, the mediator of a new covenant. By his word and spirit, Jesus will bring you home. Jesus will grant you rest. Of all that his father gave him, 
how many will he lose? Not one, but will raise it up on the last day. So on what, then, do we depend? We depend on Jesus, who without qualification or equivocation, in the words of 725, will save you who draw near to God through him. He will save you to the uttermost. The uttermost is glory and rest in Christ on Mount Zion with the people of God. On what do we wait? Here's what we wait for. We wait for the priest who is seated at God's right hand. In his good, sovereign purpose and wisdom and timing to rise. And when he rises, he will descend and he will raise to himself a people into his glory and his rest. We are waiting for what we now perceive by faith and possess by faith to appear visibly and publicly from the mountain of God. Lift up your eyes to the hills. From where does your help come? Your help comes from the Lord Jesus Christ who does not slumber, who does not sleep, who ever lives to intercede for you and he will not allow you to be lost by the heat of the sun or the cold of the night. He will preserve your coming in and your going out and he will most certainly bring you home to glory and rest. And when you are brought to rest, when you attain that glory bodily in the presence of Christ, the anthem of the glory of God in Christ will echo through the mountains of that new Jerusalem, will echo through the corridors of that heavenly temple, just as it is filled with the glory of God and the responsive worship of the church triumphant in union with the ascended Christ. It is there that the ironic benediction will come to its Melchizedekian consummation. When the ascended Christ will pronounce upon you this everlasting benediction in the heavenly mountain presence of God, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. It is now and it will be forevermore in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel and ask that you would fill us with the spirit of Christ. Raise us heavenward and remind us that we belong to him, body and soul, in life and death, whether in wilderness or in rest. We ask it in Jesus' name.